Well, we're on week three now of Advent, and we've been looking at the Old Testament covenants as they relate to us who journey through this Advent season. Week one, we looked at the Noahic covenant, which uh, revealed God's heart for preservation and our hope for relationship with him as symbolized in the rainbow. Every time we look at the rainbow, we should see that God is preserving his creation. He's patient with us. He's slow to wrath. That, that's what we see when we see in that uh, symbol uh, of that covenant. In week two, we studied Abraham's covenant. The, so the Abrahamic covenant, which reminds us of the enduring need for faith amid trying times. We saw that Abraham's life and Sarah's life, they were, they were very difficult at times. It was a hard go at life, but they still were giving uh, uh, an example of faith amid trying times. And this covenant was symbolized by circumcision. This week, we're going to look at the Mosaic Covenant. We're going to look at Exodus 19 and 20 at the Mosaic Covenant, which is God's covenant with Moses. And if you've been here the past few weeks, you will have realized that we've been trying to relate as much as possible the theme of the Advent candles here to the particular covenant that we are studying. Hope and faith, for example, they flowed naturally into God's covenant with Noah. Hope and Noah go along really well together. Faith and Abraham, that was perfect. Uh, but there was an initial hesitation on my end as I was kind of getting this series together of how I would make the link with the third Advent candle that represents love, sometimes joy, and law. Okay, Law is the distinguishing feature of the Mosaic covenant. And law and love... In my mind, as I was kind of briefly thinking about this, seemed a little bit problematic that they might come together. But after more thought, you know, I actually found it works perfectly because what is it that fulfills the law? It is love. Love fulfills the law. So these two actually go hand in hand. It actually does make sense. I didn't plan that, but it does make sense. So today we come to see how God's giving of the law in a real way is part of his covenantal love for us that is not only towards us, but it's given to us also to extend towards others to where we might show the love of God to others. So as we read this covenant given to Moses from our text this morning, I want you, read, I want you to read it through that framework. Think of the ways that God is loving us through giving us his law and that love fulfills the law that God gave us. So again, the text is Exodus 19 and 20, the entirety of the chapters. I know it's a little bit long, but I want us to get the full range of the covenant uh, that God is giving uh, to Moses so that we might better understand it. So hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out for Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness there. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be treasured possessions among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go out, or go into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount, uh, on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests come near to the Lord, consecrate themselves, let the Lord, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. Do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes, the name, or takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. 
Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, what imagery you give us in the scriptures. We have just read of your law, of your covenant given to the people of God at Mount Sinai. Lord, we come to it with reverence and all, as you've already instructed us in your call to worship. And Lord, we pray that as we continue on hearing from you this morning, that we would uh, receive it in that manner, in reverence and all. Lord, I pray that you would help us to receive it in love while we uh, fix our eyes on Jesus, who has fulfilled the law for us. Lord, we sit at your feet today asking that from Jesus himself, we would receive these commandments. From Jesus, we would recognize his authority and that you would help us to realize all the more that your word is good for us, that it is powerful to us, that it is the power of God unto salvation as the gospel is preached to us. And Lord, we ask that you would hear all these things in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. So the more we read into this revelation of the law of God, the more difficult it probably became for you to read it through that framework of love. Remember, I started by saying, let's, let's read this through love. And as you get that imagery, it started to get a little bit dark, didn't it? Israel is trembling and too afraid to even come near the smoking mountain that's thundering with flashes of lightning all around. It's a dark scene. And all the while, there's this trumpet blaring and growing louder and louder as it deafens the senses even more. It's, it's a shaking scene. If you step back and think about it, that, that must have been terrifying to, to even come anywhere close, this dark mountain where there's flames roaring up and it's smoking like a kiln. And, and yet God commanded them to be there and receive what he's giving to them. And because of this, the, the, the people ask Moses to speak to them. They, they get this vision and they're like, whoa, God, I don't know if we want to come to this. Why, why don't we have Moses here speak to us and Moses can kind of just tell us what you told Moses. So, so they're afraid that if God spoke directly to them, they would die. And, and rightly so, because God kind of hinted around that. that if they came up the mountain, if they broke through and came up to God, that they would be killed, okay? So they wanted to speak to a man like them instead of God. So, the, the, so there was this, this heart posture that they had that says, I don't want to talk to this guy, this, this God, because he is, he is super holy. He is unapproachable. I want to talk to this guy, Moses, because he's a sinner like me. He, he can kind of mediate for me and help me understand who this fearful God is that I am approaching, okay? So... Let me ask you this, church. Maybe there's been times in your life, just ask yourself, have you ever felt like this in light of God's presence? Kind of like the, the Israelites, where maybe it was that you were uh, walking into church after a particularly sinful season that left you a little bit uneasy walking into God's sanctuary, where you kind of feel the, the darkness, kind of like 
Israel did. That's what it says. There's, there's this terminology that the, there was this thick darkness, as it says, where God was. Thick darkness. Have you, have you felt that before? Maybe in these moments, uh, it was easier for you to kind of talk to the pastor who stood at the doorway rather than rush on in. And you kind of wanted to hang out there even as you knew church was starting and you knew you needed to go sit down, but you kind of just wanted to hang there because you were too afraid to move forward into the actual worship part where you had to confront God himself. I'll just chat with the pastor and this will kind of scratch that itch that I have that I know I need to be in communion with God, but I'll just kind of stay here at the doorway and talk to this pastor because you know what? I know he's a sinner too. Have you felt like that before? Well, the truth is when God reveals himself in these moments, there should be a sense, uh, a good sense and a reverential sense of fear. Right? You should feel that a bit. And that's actually the point here is that, that, that you should feel this. But one of the things that we should notice in this narrative is that Moses tells the people in verse 20 of chapter 20 what? Do not fear. Okay, did, you, did you catch that in verse 20? Let's just read it. Verse 20, he says to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Okay. Now, now why? Why? Because the, the, the fear had crippled them from true communion with God. Okay. Moses is realizing that they are, they're getting to a point where they're stopping and they shouldn't stop. That they should continue on. They're saying, don't speak directly to me, God. We want a man like us to show us what you're like. And Moses is realizing that that won't really do. In light of the law of God, the growing covenant stipulations that God's showing himself, he's opening up who he is, these Hebrews felt that God was too holy for them to approach. This is kind of the newness that comes with the law. As you're moving away from like the Abrahamic covenant, and the, the Noahic covenant, the, the Noahic covenant, we can rightly say it's kind of like all rainbows, right? I mean, it's all rainbows and roses kind of thing. God's, he's going to preserve us. Yes, he's faithful to us. And then we move to the Abrahamic covenant. It gets a little harder. It's hard to see what God's doing in these times. And then you get to the Mosaic covenant. It's like, whoa, we, we just got a glimpse of God that we hadn't seen before. This is, this is a little scary. This is a, a little fearful. But ask yourself, was this God's intention in giving them the law, that they might be scared of God. I want to frame it like that. Is that what God was doing there? Was this law supposed to drive Israel away from God? Was the, was the purpose for them to actually distance them, themselves even more in kind of this paralyzing fear that kept them from keep going, keeping on going and approaching God face to face? And if this was what he wanted, how did that fit with the prior covenants that this was growing out of? Where he was going to be preserving them, where he was going to be faithful to them and to their offspring and be with them. Now, now remember, God had told Abraham, remember we talked about the Abrahamic covenant last week, God had told Abraham in Genesis 15 that actually all this would happen, okay? that his offspring would be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and that they would be servants there and that they would be afflicted for 400 years, but he would bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. That's word for word what God had told Abraham in Genesis 15. But that's the Exodus event that these people have just went through. This is what was foretold to Abraham, and they have just experienced this that's flowing out of the covenant with Abraham. God was right. He, he called it. He knew it was going to happen. And in fact, that gracious event is even the, the preface to his giving of the law that we just read. What comes right before the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. 
Before he gives the law, he says, here's who I am. I'm going to reveal my, my personhood to you. I'm going to reveal what I've done for you. I'm going to give you this great glimpse of myself, which is a gracious vision. And then I'm going to tell you what you're going to do as my people. So if the law was not given to drive them away from God, what is this law for? What, what is the law for? What is the Mosaic Covenant, and how does it relate to us, maybe? Thousands of years later, who are now sojourning uh, through this season of Advent. How does it come back to us? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about the law. We're going to talk about the Mosaic Covenant and, and try to understand what that means, what it meant for the people of God, and also what it means for us now. So the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, Like the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant is another outgrowth of that same covenant of grace that people have always been in relationship with God through. You are only saved through the covenant of grace. You cannot be saved through the covenant of works unless you have perfect perpetual obedience to it, which no one ever has. Okay, We all fall short of that covenant. We cannot live under that covenant. It will crush us. But, but the distinctive feature of the Mosaic covenant that sets it apart from the others is the law. The law is this new thing that God gives here that is striking to the people of God, then and now. Okay? This law is extensively expounded over numerous books of the Bible. Okay? The law actually spans over five books. If you look through the scriptures, you see the law is often referred to as, and it's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. It's, it's actually talking about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was the law, so it's quite extensive when the, 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 the scriptures talk about the law. But the Decalogue, the, the ten words as they were called by the Jews, the ten commandments as we call them now, that distilled this, this extensive order within God's covenant down to ten basic commandments. Okay, We've even taken a little bit further. You notice that that's a little bit shorter than what we just read there. But those are even a, a condensed version of the ten commandments. But then even further... Once you get in the New Testament, we see that these two tables of the law can be simplified down into love of God on one side of the table and love of neighbor on the other. Okay? The first four are oriented to God, so don't take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Remember who he is. Don't make idols. Okay? Those are things oriented to God. And then on the other side, don't cheat on your wife kind of thing. Okay? Don't steal. Love your neighbor. So these can be condensed down to, to an even more distilled version that is love God and love neighbor. And this all stems from this covenant given to Moses. Okay, that makes sense, right? But, but let's be honest. Most Christians don't know what to do with the law. We have the law now in the New Testament. We see it mentioned sometimes. Um, and it, it's almost contradictory if you don't know how to read it in Scripture. So sometimes when you read it, uh, people have this natural tendency to either live all for it or reject it altogether. Like we, we don't know how to balance it very well as Christians in the, the Christian church. And living for it leads to legalism, where, where you're going to approach God on the basis of the law. If I, if I obey God's commandments, he'll be happy with me. I'll be accepted by God if I do these things. So this is an overemphasis of the law. That's a wrong reading of it. And then rejecting it all the, uh, altogether, on the other hand, is antinomianism, as it's been called in Scripture. I know it's a big word. Anti means uh, no or against, and nomos is the Greek word for law. So anti-law. There, there were people post-Reformation that said, well, let's just throw it, all, throw it out altogether. There is no law anymore. Okay? This is an underemphasis of the law that says, I am free in Christ. I don't have to consider the law at all anymore. I can do what I want. Okay? But that's also an imbalanced view as well. So neither of these views really capture God's heart of hearts 
as he gives this law to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. If you would look at the text itself, again at chapter 20, verse 20, you can see that Moses tries to correct this sheepish behavior by telling them God's intent of the law. So they're scared in kind of this paralyzed way. They don't want to come close to it. And then they ask Moses to speak instead of God. And he says, do not fear. Do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Now, I really love the way that Moses communicates this to his people. This is kind of his, his pastoral counsel. It's don't fear because God's coming to test you, that the fear of him may be before you. It's kind of funny. It's like, don't fear. You need to fear because God's going to be here with you. It's like, okay, uh, that, that hurts my brain a little bit. But, but that's what he's saying. It's as if he's saying that don't allow the fear, though. Here's what he's getting at. Don't allow the fear to keep you from approaching God. Okay? Don't let that be the hang-up. But also, don't think that coming to the Lord is not a fearful thing. It is a fearful thing. You, it is a little scary, in a sense, in a reverential kind of way, to fall into the hand of the Lord. Yet you're still commanded to come. Come to the Lord in love. Okay? That, that's what's going to keep all of this grounded and rooted, is love. Now, if you think about this, this is a, a bit of a, a reiteration of the Noahic covenant and Noah's family as they exited the ark. Remember in that sermon, I tried to help you image what it would be like as Noah's family steps out from the ark. Okay, God just killed all their friends. He killed much of their family. He killed everyone on the earth, flooded all that they knew, destroyed their homes, destroyed their gardens, destroyed everything that they knew in the name of holiness. Okay, He's going to wash the earth clean. And then uh, the world was just cleansed by uh, God, and they stand as sinners on this holy ground, walking out wondering, could I be the next reason that God will flood the earth? Of course we know. God says, no, that's not going to happen. But Israel now has kind of been put in the same boat, right? Israel has exited uh, the Egyptian slavery, right? They were in slavery over there, and God washed the Egyptians away in the Red Sea. Literally what happened? They probably had relationships with some of those people, even though they were enslaved to them. I'm sure they had conversations with them. They probably grew near to some of them, maybe even had a, a filial relationship with them, where they were kind of friends, and the, yet they were in slavery. But all of what they knew has just been wiped away. It's been washed away. And there they stand as sinners too, because they know they're not apart from sin, commanded to keep God's covenant. God says, I'm washing away all these sinners. And they're like, what about us? Kind of thing. That, that's really what Sinai is. These people weren't sinless. They knew they weren't sinless. And God's just wiped them out, uh, wiped their slaver, or slavers out, and said, I'm going to be faithful to you, and you need to be holy. You need to be a holy people for my own possession. And they're scared probably, right? So in essence, this is, this is a gracious condescension on God's part where he promises not to destroy them because man is wicked from his youth, right? He's already established this in his covenant. Yet they should revere and obey in light of his holiness. This is part the part of the law that's actually really helpful for Israel that they need. That they can't just uh, run crazy and do whatever they want just because God has given them grace. Right? Paul kind of hits on this, right? Can we sin so the grace may abound? By no means. This is where God is going and where he's heading towards in his covenant of grace. But it is clearly still a covenant of grace, not a covenant of works. So you see this gracious covenantal pattern in Exodus 22. Before he gives the law, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Okay? Notice how God begins the covenant obligations with grace, not works. 
He says, I've already done this. Now you do this. Okay? I've went before you. I've done what needed to happen. I've, I've freed you. I've given you the freedom to be who, my people. Now go and live in light of that in my kingdom. Here's my order. It's, it's pretty simple, really. And this is just how the covenant of uh, uh, God works, is where he says, I'm going to make provisions for you, but here's how it will work once we're here. Okay, That's how the relationship with God works. As our sovereign, as our king, he says, you're going you're to live in my kingdom, but there is going to be order. There, and that's the only way that there can be joy. That's the only way that there can be love, is when there is order and love between one another. So grace fuels the obedience to the law, and from the obedience there are attending blessings incurred. Okay, this is where it gets a little bit hairy. We hit on this a little bit in Sunday school this morning, but I want to talk a little bit more about it. So, so not only do we see that the law teaches us God's desire for how we should live, but it also gives us gracious promises to expect when we do obey his commandments. Okay, and I want to be very careful in the way that I speak about this because some people have skewed this in a, in a wrong way of thinking about covenant faithfulness and the blessing that comes with covenant faithfulness. So take, for instance, uh, the, the command to honor thy father and mother, that it may go well with you in the land. Okay, that, that is a, a promise of blessing. And one implication that we can take from this is that obedience to God's law brings earthly blessing, not just some future blessing, but he's saying that it may go well with you in the land that I'm providing for you. Okay, So God's doing something he even here now on earth. So we are not saying, though, that it brings salvation. Okay, I want to be careful in the way that I kind of dice this up. The, the attending blessings of the covenant and the, the covenant faithfulness brings are not the essence of the gospel. They are fruits of the gospel. Okay, Does that make sense? They are byproducts. As the gospel works out, you can expect fruits. Okay, This must be said, though, in a day and age where Health, wealth, and prosperity gospel infects the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are people that say that if you just follow Jesus, that you'll get all you want. You'll get that Rolls Royce. You'll get that jet. You'll get that plane. If you just place your faith in Jesus, if you just give $10 to our ministry, that's what it usually is. That's the act of faith. But, but, but there, there's this wrong way of seeing covenant faithfulness to where it says that you get health, wealth, and prosperity if you have faith in God. That's not what I'm saying. Faith in Jesus does not necessarily bring anything other than the promise of salvation this side of death. Okay? There's a lot that comes after death. So faith in Jesus doesn't necessarily bring anything other than eternal life. That's what we know. We can bank on we're promised. But covenant faithfulness as an outworking of salvation does promise to some extent, I know there's lots of stipulations here, earthly blessing. Okay, Let me say that again. Covenant faithfulness as an outworking of salvation does promise, to some extent, earthly blessing. Okay, I, know I, I caveated that to, to death, where almost doesn't mean anything, but it does. Okay, How else, though? Think of it this way. How else can Paul quote the fifth commandment, remember, in, in Ephesians 6, by telling children what? Obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right, and this is the first com commandment with promise. Okay? With a promise, children obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. This is a New Testament example of an apostle of God applying God's gracious law, right? He's, he's making an appeal to the law from the Mosaic Covenant to the everyday living in order to find earthly blessing for children. Children, obey the law and you will be blessed. Obey your parents and it will go well with you. And that's something you can trust in. It doesn't mean that if you obey your parents, you're going to be saved forever. But there's this reality to covenant faithfulness. When we live in line with God's law, you can expect 
blessing. Okay. But on the back side of this, okay, that we talked about the blessing now. Let's talk about the cursing. Okay, that, that's what we don't always like to talk about. On the back side of this, there is a tragic element that we should familiarize ourselves with, especially in this Advent season. Because the nature of the covenant is somewhat conditional as it relates to earthly blessing, this necessarily follows that we as sinners are going to experience a loss from sometimes from our unfaithfulness. There's, there's going to be seasons in life where you are not living as you should, even as a Christian, and you are going to experience hardship and loss as a, a result, a byproduct of your unfaithfulness to God's law and his covenant. We call those consequences. We talked about this a little bit already. We don't like to come to terms with them as Christians. We like to think that because we're Christians, God takes away all our consequences and nothing bad ever happens. Not necessarily true. It's not true. And it's not a despairing loss because the hope of, the sal uh, hope of salvation always remains unconditional. Right? That, that's the hope. I'm saved. I can get back on track. There's hope for moving forward. But I believe we all know that living outside of God's law can wreak havoc on not only an individual level, but even a communal level. It grows out. Sin infects and affects everything around us. It's not like we can keep it hot, hidden and pretty and no one will ever know. It doesn't work like that. It, it, it changes our reality around us. Now, consider Israel's exile. Okay, the, This Old Testament event. Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, okay, New Testament, tells us, uh, this is a New a New Testament example, a New Testament word to us. He tells us that these things took place for us as our examples. Okay, In other words, just as Israel drifted into exile by their sins, just as generational curses were passed along to the third and fourth generations, as it said, so also in the New Covenant, we might see something like this in a maybe a national drift away from God's law, where we once acknowledged God has a, a law that's higher than us. In our courthouses, we had the Ten Commandments. We actually followed them. We actually were revered them. We actually said God gave us this law, and it's a gracious thing for us and a help to us. And then we start to drift away from that. In our sin, where we no longer have any fear of God, where we no longer revere these things, we no longer see God as the one in control, the God the one that's in covenant with us, that helps us through life, that helps us build community, to build the city, to build the polis, to build the church. All of this, we move away from that, and we incur curses. We, we are unfaithful to God, and we get what we have coming to us. This is part of even the new covenant. So we, we would see maybe even uh, maybe uh, move away from the, the communal scale of like the city, Think about this in families, unfaithfulness in families. Even as Christians, we can struggle with sin, and that sin doesn't stay isolated to just us. It affects future generations. Think about divorced families, how that can kind of snowball and go on to even the third and fourth and generation, keep going and going. That's why you see these patterns sometimes kind of get stuck in families where covenant unfaithfulness brings cursing of God. Okay? This covenantal lens helps us to see that our living makes a difference now. What you do matters. Your actions in life, they really do have real implications right now. Your faithfulness affects not just you, but your family. Okay? Your, faithful, or your unfaithfulness affects not just you, but your family. Even your extended community. Think about that. The implications that that would have for us as a church. If we're living faithfully, we can expect fruits of the gospel in our community. If we're living unfaithfully, what can we expect? Rotten fruit. We can expect bad things in our community. Because these covenantal uh, ties exist, we must be all the more careful 
not to keep uh, pet sins to ourselves. Have you ever heard people talk about pet sins? Yeah. You know, those sins that you think are simple pleasures, uh, but uh, because you view them as controllable, you don't really think that you are enslaved to them. I have this image in my mind of when I think of pet sins, you know, all those like dog moms where they, they, they don't think that the dog controls them. They think that they're the master, but everyone knows who's really in control as they're pushing those dogs around in a stroller. Right. It's that kind of thing. Right. That is what I'm talking about. We're able to keep these things on a leash and we think that we are in control. We think that we're tidied up and that we have the freedom to do what we uh, want to do. But it's actually the, the pet that is controlling us, controlling our lives, controlling our pattern. Right. That, sorry, I, I don't like dogs very much. We don't have any pets in my house. Uh, church, don't believe the lie that 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 sin won't one day turn on you and bite you and start to bite others. Just because you think you've tamed it a long time ago, you think you've kept it hidden, you think that it's controlled, oh well, your sins will find you out. You, you can't hide those things. So it's better to put that dog down before it gets out and bites you or someone else. That, that's, that's my pastoral advice for you today. As, as you can tell, I'm not a huge dog lover. So, so the point I'm making, though, is that God's law is in step with the covenant of grace just as much as the Noahic covenant, just as much as the Abrahamic covenant. And it also illumines that dark side of the soul that we actually need to come in touch with. Right? We, we need this. It was a good thing for God to show us this side of himself because it also showed us that side of ourselves that we needed to see. Okay? It evokes a godly grief over our sins that leads us to repentance. Okay? This is what we really, really need. It allows us to look at our brokenness and gives us a holy ache for further conformity to Christ, where we look at the law and say, oh, that's not where I need to be. I don't like where this leads. I don't like the implications of this. This kind of grace hurts, but the way that a good workout hurts, right? where you're done and you're exhausted, but it's also this kind of hope for the future, right? It leaves us with sweat on our brow from the curse of the fall, but also hope for healing and more endurance next time, right? Where we get stronger through that workout, of learning to look at the law where it drives us to our needs, and then Jesus picks us back up and makes us stronger. That's what God was doing when he was giving us the law. The, the way that Paul spoke about the law in Galatians 3 was that it was like a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. And I love the way that Paul puts that because Everyone knows that school can sometimes be painful, right? It's a, it's a long, drawn-out process. Some of the teachers in the, the room know that school isn't always uh, tidy and pretty and sinless, right? It, it makes us come to terms with ourselves that we are inadequate. Like, we don't know everything. It's humiliating for us. It, it teaches us and it stretches us and it grows us to something else. Okay? So the, the law was the schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. And when we look at it, we realize that it doesn't have the power to save, but it drives us to the one who does. Just like education doesn't answer all the problems, just because you go through the system and you, 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 you've, you've had it all revealed to your eyes, it doesn't necessarily fix the person, but it will show you how much you need education. It will show you how much you need to be taught. It will show you where you need to be. Okay? And because the law of God reveals for us, the, the perfection of humanity. We look at the law and we say, wow, if someone obeyed this, they would be perfect. That they would be holy. When the law does that, it all the more identifies for us what Jesus really was. He wasn't the abolitionist of the law, was he? He was the fulfiller of the law. He was the one that we can now see because we see our shortcoming. We see what the law would give for us. We see that, oh, wow, Jesus actually did that. 
Jesus walked through the law and he lived under it perfectly in such a way that we're able to be able to put our faith in Jesus, as the gospel tells us, to where we no longer live under the law, we live under Christ who fulfills the law of love for us, in us, as we work out his love as his hands and feet is the way that the New Testament puts this for us. Not that we're doing it perfectly, not that we're uh, obedient to the law at every point, but through Christ we have this baptized imagery of how we might live in obedience to God. We live under Christ, not under the law. And again, it's not that the law has passed away or been abolished. This is one of the, the shortcomings that many of us have as we start to think about the law in the, in the New Testament. Some people believe that the law, uh, the law in and of itself, they believe was a curse. And because they believe it's a curse, uh, they will they will say that well it's been abolished, okay? But but this, and, and they say this because scripture says uh, it refers to the law as the curse of the law. And the the misreading is saying well the, the scripture says the curse of all the law must be a curse. But that's actually not thinking about it correctly, okay? It it is still just as much a sin to murder, to commit adultery, to lie, to make graven images, uh, to take the Lord's name in vain, as it was at the first publication of law. All that is still in force, and we now obey the law, but we obey it through Christ. Okay, So it's not that it's been abolished. It's still just as much a sin to break those laws. Now we remain faithful not to the abstract ideal of the law. We remain faithful to Christ, who is the embodiment and incarnational example of the law lived out, the law that has been lived out for us. Okay? That's how we are obedient to Christ. And, and I once read a Ligonier article that expressed it this way that really helped clear up my mind and maybe the misconception that comes with reading the law as a curse. Okay? It, it says, our redemption is from the curse of God's law, not from our duty to obey it. Let me say that again. Our redemption is from the curse of God's law, not from our duty to obey it. The point being made is that the law was not and is not a curse. The curse was an internal mechanism of the covenant that was applied to the lawbreaker. Okay? It was only a curse if you broke it. It was only a curse if you didn't live up to the standards. And that's what Scripture is telling us, that Jesus came to live under the law for us, that we might be freed from the curse of the law. Not that we would be freed from the law, but the curse of the law. See, there's a distinction there. That makes a big difference when we think about our obedience to the law. It's not that we throw it out and we don't think about it anymore because of Jesus. It's that Jesus has fulfilled it for us. And that frees us now to be able to have a freedom to obey it in light of Christ. So within this covenant, we also see that sin was presumed and provided for through the sacrificial system embedded within it. Think about that. So it's gracious because even within the covenant itself, it presumes that you're going to sin. Right? It's not a covenant of works where you have to keep the covenant the entire time. And if you break it, you're thrown out. No, sin was presumed because we have the sacrificial system built into it. Okay. So it's, it's pointing forward to something, isn't it? It's pointing us towards something that can fulfill it for us. It had within it a system for dealing with sin through the means of sacrifice that we now know has been fulfilled for us. Amen? So, so, so the, the Mosaic Covenant is not a covenant of works. Some people think that it is, and that's why I'm trying to press hard and say, no, it's, it's not. The, the, the Mosaic Covenant is not a covenant of works demanding perpetual perfect obedience like the first covenant with, Abraham, with Adam. This is a gracious covenant of God where God upheld both ends of the covenant through the ultimate sacrifice that we have in Jesus. This is the covenant of grace that the, the, the Mosaic covenant grows out of. So as we close, let's bring these kind of conceptual uh, abstract truths into the intimate sphere of our Advent expressions. As we're trying to live through this Advent season, uh, figure out how, what this means for us. 
the, the topic of law, it, it might seem dry and impersonal, but let's remember this Advent season that Christ fulfilled it not as a distant obligation, but personally for us. Okay, so when you think about breaking the law, you can find one of those ten up there, I'm sure this morning, that you've broken. Now when you think about that, don't think of it as just an abstract breaking of the law. I want you to think about a real intimate sphere where you'd say, I broke this, I'm guilty, I'm accountable to it, but someone has came and took the punishment for me. That, that changes things when we move it a little bit closer to home. If, if you would get a letter in the mail that says you are guilty, and you'd read that and say, I can't pay that. For, for the rest of my life, I'm, I'm enslaved to the sin. I have to, I have to take this curse upon myself. And then you find out Jesus comes knocking on your door and says, no, no, no. I've taken care of that. that. That would change things if we started to think about the law in a more personal sense like that. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, John tells us. Church, Jesus calls you friend. You are that friend of Jesus that he comes to, knocking on the door, saying, I'm here for you. I've provided for this. I've lived under the law already. And I, I know that that was counted to you. I know that that sin held you guilty before the law court, but I'm telling you today that I've already fulfilled that punishment for you. I've taken that upon myself. Now live, be free, but do it in, in, in step with who I am and what the law has given for you. That's love, church. That, that, that really is love. That is grace, that, that God has done this for us. He lived under the law, not only to demonstrate obedience to it, but to fulfill that law for your sinful behalf. He's done it for you, holding up both ends of the covenant again, like we talked about. Okay, He never broke the covenant, yet willingly bore the curse for covenant breakers for people like you and I. That's what Jesus did. And as we approach God with the fear of the Lord, and we should approach him with reverence and awe, as Hebrews New Testament tells us, we approach the Lord with, the, with fear and awe. Let's also not be paralyzed, though, like Israel was. They, they were too scared. They thought that the fear meant we need to stop. But what we actually need to do is keep going. In the, in the fear of the Lord, we, we proceed forward with reverence and all recognizing what Jesus has done. Because within the covenant, provisions have already been made to deal with our sins. Right? It's been presumed. We're going to be sinners. Yet Jesus still engages us. And this is the love that propels us, moves us forward, not just to God, but to others. Right? Love God. Love others. That's what God was doing through this law. So as we plunge ourselves into the, the season of Advent, let the love exemplified by Christ uh, be shared and shape in our interactions. Okay, What we're doing, let people see Jesus and what he's done for us. The Advent candles that help spiritually illuminate our path symbolize not just the coming of Christ, but also the embodiment of love. Love that Jesus urges us to share with others, to come to others and come to God Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you have done a lot for us. You've done more than we could have ever asked. In fact, Lord, we would have never asked anything of you in our sin because we are prideful, we are sinful, and from our youth we are wicked in every single way. We are selfish. We want to build kingdoms for our own desires. We want to create a reality and a life around us that reflects who we are, not who you are. Father, in our sin, we isolate ourselves. We push, uh, we drive ourselves away from your grace. We drive ourselves away from your law, and we can even convince ourselves at times that your law itself is even a curse. Lord, adjust our thinking. 
Renew our minds today to be able to receive your son Jesus, who has fulfilled a law that wasn't a curse, but fulfilled the curse of the law for us. And help us all the more to embrace your good order with grace, recognizing that you've made provisions for us. Lord, transform and conform us to the image of Jesus, who is readily living under the law, but doing it righteously with freedom as a son. Lord, we want to have that kind of freedom as sons and daughters today of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us now continue to worship by standing and singing together a newer hymn. Uh, We're still working on it. Uh, God with us. This is hymn number nine. Uh, I think that we are actually going to sing this at the longest night, so I wanted to put it in here twice uh, before we sing it to our community so that we can sing it a little bit better. So uh, let's sing loud and try to learn it as well as we can so we can sing Uh, this week with our community. Amen. Please stand with me as we sing together.